about the gifts of Christmas, and last week, uh, it's all about gifts this whole month, and last week we talked about um, the gift of life, and we looked at this verse, John 10, John 10, verse 10, it says He came to give us abundant life. God gave us uh, natural life, which is a gift to you, by the way, and you should honor the life you've been given. Then He gave us abundant life through Jesus Christ, and then also through Christ we're promised eternal life. And we studied that last week. If you missed it, it's on our new webpage, which we'll talk to you about at the end of the service. And uh, you can pull that up and share it with your friends. I'd really encourage you to share the teachings uh, with your friends off our website. That's why we put them there. So we can expand our ministry uh, even uh, digitally and electronically out there. But today I want to talk to you about the gift of love. Part two of our series is about the gift of love. And uh, everybody loves a good love story. And all of you who've experienced genuine love, real love, uh, in your life uh, know the thrill of that and know um, just um, what love is, is this unique thing that happens to us. Um, we talk about falling in love, which is kind of an interesting way, interesting way to put that, because um, it sounds like you're going to get hurt in the process. But if you've ever fallen in love, you will get hurt in the process. So it kind of makes good sense. I think I've told you this before, but I remember the very first time, uh, you know, when I met my uh, wife Annette at Bible College, Annette Hathaway, when I met her there, um, she hung out with a group of girls at the college that were an elite group of girls. They were uh, very intelligent and very beautiful and way out of, you know, fat, ugly guys' league. And, uh, I mean, it was not even a question that I would even consider talking to them in the cafeteria or hallways, much less asking one of them out. And then long story short is I was told by some friends that she really wanted to go to uh, um, December the 5th uh, is our... Uh, anniversary of our first date. I always give her flowers on that day. Um, but we went on a, a date to um, the, the school had a Christmas banquet. It happened, the banquet happened to be, this is a natural givens problem, the banquet happened to be at the church school where I worked. So I had to actually physically set up the banquet, mop the hallways, get everything clean, clean all the bathrooms and the toilets, get the kitchen ready for the, our banquet to get there, run home to the dorm, take a shower, go pick her up and come right back to where I'd just been all afternoon. So um, that's just how the Gibbons life works sometimes. And uh, but the, but our first uh, date was there, and I remember uh, just being no kidding, just goo goo, starry eyed, babbling. You know, I, I remember riding in the back of my friend's car, uh, Chevy Caprice Classic, uh, to that to that event with her next to me, and she was dressed, you know, at these banquets, we always, the, the ladies always wore their finest, and we always wore just our old suits. But I remember just being blown away that I was sitting next to someone that pretty, and they actually wanted to go with, to me, you know, with me to this banquet. And then, uh, you know, that, that went on for several weeks. We, we got to know each other well, and we'd, we'd been talking for a long time before that. Uh, but I remember the first time I ever put my arm around her, um, we were sitting looking over Birmingham City, the old campus of Southeastern is not there anymore, but the old campus used to sit up on a hillside that literally looked over Birmingham, and it was absolutely beautiful. It had these uh, homes from the 1900s and built, by, built out of stone. It had these beautiful porches uh, with these stone columns on them, uh, handmade stone columns, and, and uh, we would just sit on these big benches and look over the city at night and talk till it was time to get back to the dorm. And I remember right before Christmas break... 
um, I just had it in my heart to tell her. And so put my arm around her and I told her, you know, Annette, I love you. And I mean, my heart was pounding out of my chest. Um, and I was, you know, goo-goo-eyed, just giddy about all that. And I'll never forget how much, how, what she said back, which was, well, I like you too. So, and uh, I, I, I remember that night going back to my dorm thinking, that did not go at all like I thought it would. And I think I've messed this whole thing up and she's just going to, you know, over the holidays, she's going to send me a Dear John letter, we're done. You know, that was, you're moving way too fast and you're just stupid and ugly and all that. So, uh, but over the holidays, she sent me a nice card, um, Christmas card. Um, I can tell you exactly where I was sitting in the old house on the coast road when I, when I read that card and got all the way, the, I'm reading it very fast to get to the end to see what it said, how she signed it. You know, and it said, love you, Annette. And I was like, Okay, we're safe, you know, so, um, but she'd been through some relationships recently and been hurt and she just didn't want to rush into that. And so we had to talk about it. But, you know, when you really fall in love, it changes everything. And there's an energy about just the concept of love as it happens to you that's very, very different. And, uh, but it's a gift that God's given us. The ability to love one another, that's a gift from God. The ability to feel love, to sense love and to know you're loved is a gift from God, and you should really thank God all the time for it, the fact that you can know you're loved. Um, you know, I've I thought many times about how uh, clear my mom made that uh, in our household. She was a very loving woman, and she constantly just made sure, me and the two boys, we knew we were loved. And she actually had a rule, um, I'm not sure where she got it, but she had this rule that you couldn't leave without saying, I love you. You know, anytime you're leaving, the last thing you say to my mama was, bye, mom, I love you. Every single time. And, uh, I mean, so I know when she went home to be with the Lord, I had left, she was in a nursing home, and I had left to go back to Birmingham. I know exactly what the very last words my mom ever heard from me were. Bye, Mom, I love you. Because that's what she made us do all our lives. And she wanted that to be part of our family mantra. And so so it's a, a really good practice. But there's a, a different kind of love that God has for us than all this magnificent love we experience. Family love and and romantic love and all that, there's a whole different kind of love. And so what kind of love does God have for me? Um, it, there's lots of types of love that people describe. There's a mother's love. There's a father's love. There's friendship love. There's, you know, people talk nowadays a lot about tough love, um, which is a good practice if you're a parent. You should have some tough love along the way to, to raise your children in the admonition of the Lord. But um, what kind of love does God have for me? Well, I want to say to you, He has all of those loves, but they're all combined into one very special love. And the technical term we use for that, these three questions we're going to deal with today, um, what kind of love does God have for me? How much does He love us? That has to do with the quantity of His love. We're going to talk about quality and quantity, and then we're going to say, well, how long will that last? And uh, so we're going to look at the duration of, of how God loves us. So first question, what kind of love does God have for me? Um, real simple answer. The technical term is agape. It's a Greek term. And uh, there, the, the New Testament is written in Greek. God, God penned the New Testament or had his writers write it in the language of Greek, which is a lot like Latin uh, for us modern day uh, people. And it's, it's a language that's very, very specific. It's not general. Because see, I can tell you that I love my wife and I love my car and I love my compound bow and I love my dog, and all of that sounds the same to you. You know, you don't know the difference, and you're hoping as a pastor that I love my wife more than my dog, 
you know, because if I'm up here teaching you, you really don't need to be here if it's the other way around, right? So, so, but, but in our language, the word love is, is, is very washed out into a lot of things. You can love a, you know, I love a good piece of German chocolate cake, you know, so you can love a lot of things in English and you don't know the levels of that. But in Greek, there's no question about what kind of love they're talking about because there's four different Greek words and uh, some of them have, most of them have to do with how People love each other. The, the word Philadelphia, phileo, is one of those loves. Uh, mankind's love for one another is a Philadelphia love. And it, it's, it's limited, by the way. It's what people would say, um, well, you know, I'll love you if you love me. Or, you know, I can love you as long as you don't. See how there's exceptions in there. And there's, there's, it's like, uh, I'll go 80% of the way, but you've got to give me at least 20%. That's man's love. That's Philadelphia love. Um, that's not the kind of love God loves us with ever. His love is called agape, and it's a Greek word, and it really means a sacrificial, unending love. That's the whole concept behind agape. I'll give you the, the clearest picture of it. When, it's, when the Bible speaks of God's love, it typically uses this term. 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the greatest places to see it. I'd love for you to turn there in your Bibles and just write it down. Because this is the description of how God loves us. Now, it's in a passage where he's saying we should love one another this way. By the way, you're called not to just have Philadelphia love for your brothers and sisters in the church and your family and your friends. You're called to have agape love. The only way it's ever going to happen is if you'll turn the Holy Spirit just wide open loose inside yourself. If you'll pray, as we've talked about in a few services recently, if you'll pray to be filled with the Spirit, you can probably live agape love out in your home and in your workplace and with your family. But it's a huge challenge. But here's what it looks like. Read this at a bunch of weddings. First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, well known for most of us, called the love chapter. Verse 4 says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not become, it does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, that's sin, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things and endures all things. Love never fails. Every time that's used there, it's the Greek word agape. That's what agape love is. And I just made this little list for you. Um, that word patient, is, we've talked about it many times, is the word the King James does a great job translating this because it's a word we don't use very much, but it's long-suffering. And it's, it's a, a word that has to do with standing in the heat of a battle the longest. Love is long-suffering. Uh, it doesn't give up on people. Um, it's patient. It's kind. I love this one. It does not boast. And then it says, and this is huge. You talk about, you want to separate your kind of love. If you, if you want to see if you have agape love or Philadelphia love toward your spouse or a family member or relative, here's what you got to do. It keeps no record of wrongs. If you've got agape love, there's not a scorecard that you're marking off. You're not keeping a tallied list of offenses or trouble, things that bother you or hurt you so that in a future battle or future conflict, you can bring those back up and say, yeah, but the reason I'm behaving this way or doing this is because you did that. That's Philadelphia love. That's not God's love. And uh, God is, by the way, He's the only one even capable of having an accurate and complete tally sheet of your sins. Do you know that? God could, if He chose, 
have an insanely accurate and complete tally sheet of every time you sinned in thought or in behavior toward Him. He could keep a list on you. But here's what it says about agape love. God loves us and keeps no record of wrong. As a matter of fact, the psalmist says, as Christians, our sins are separated as far as the east is from the west. The two never meet. If you drive far enough west, you go east again, so you can never put east and west together. Our sins are separated that far. The psalmist says our sins are buried in the deepest sea. They're so far away you can't even get to them. Our uh, divers, by the way, have never found the deepest parts of the ocean. They can't even get to that. And that's where our sins are buried. They cannot be retrieved by man. And God doesn't even keep record of them. That's the beautiful thing about God. Your sins are separated from you and from Him, and He will never, ever recount them to you as a Christian. Now that's some serious love. We're talking about the gift of love. Here's how God loves you. He will never, if you're a Christian, He will never recount your sins against you because there is no list. There is no list. It's funny how we keep a list for ourselves, don't we? Like for most of us as Christians, you can tell me the last time you really sinned or struggled, or you can tell me most of your big sins or your conflicts, you know, that you've had some issues that you got in your life. We keep a list. God does not keep a record of that. A great old song, a uh, gospel song that was written a long time ago, it says, uh, you know, he, when I uh, speak of my sins, he says, I don't even know what you're talking about. I have no concept of what you're talking about. Um, God would say, I don't even know what you're talking about when you're confessing past sins because I've covered all them. And then I like how it says, and I didn't put this on your notes, but I like how it says, it believes all things, it rejoices with the truth, verse 7, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Agape love just endures. The whole point of God's love is it is an enduring love that will hope past hope, it'll hope past failures, and it just keeps on hoping and loving and enduring. That's the beauty of God's love. Now, there's a lot of Bible's examples of that. I put three of them in your notes. And I'm going to encourage you to read these stories because they're magnificent. There's a great one in the Old Testament uh, in the book of Zephaniah, which talks about, just gives you a picture of God forgiving unforgivable people. Uh, and it's a vision that the prophet Zephaniah has. And uh, is it Zephaniah or Zechariah? Somebody better check on that because um, my notes say Zechariah. But he shows me a vision. I think it's Zechariah. So there's two Z's in the Old Testament. So uh, then he showed me uh, um, the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. I'm going to read straight, straight out of Zechariah 3 to you. And Satan, standing at his right side, accused him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this the man? Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now, Joshua, this is how the high priest, and in this vision, Joshua the high priest has been brought in to stand before God Almighty. And the high priest in Israel represents Israel, and Israel's been in horrible sin. And so in Zechariah's vision, what happens is there's the clothing that the priest is wearing represent the sinfulness of Israel. You imagine wearing all the sins of, of our nation? Just take all the sins of, of take, let's take all the sins of, of, uh, the United States and put them on you. Let's, let's put, put a garment on you that represents all the sin of the United States and then have you stand before God. How would that feel? You'd be humiliated and you'd be ashamed and embarrassed. And by the way, you'd be ready for just the judgment of God. 
Because God doesn't tolerate sin. So here is, in the Old Testament, a picture of someone that's completely drenched in sin of the entire nation of Israel standing before the judgment seat of God. And Satan is there accusing, saying, see, look at all those sins. But then here's what happens in the story. The angel of the Lord, which by the way is a representation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. It's, it's when Jesus shows up in the Old Testament, he steps up at the courthouse and he steps up in front of the judge's bench and he says, Satan, I rebuke you. And by the way, the Hebrew term here, um, it, when, he, when he does it twice, the Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord has chosen uh, Jerusalem, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, this Joshua who represents Jerusalem, I've chosen him, I rebuke you. When he says it twice in the Hebrew language, when you tell somebody something twice as a rebuke, it means leave. So Jesus is saying, see the door? Don't let it hit you on the way out, Satan, because this is my courtroom, this is my son, Joshua, he's part of my family, you do not stand here accusing and so in Hebrew, Jesus literally shows up and He says, I rebuke you twice, which means leave here. And then Jesus says, verse 4, the angel says to those standing by, take off His filthy clothes. And He says, see, I've taken away your sin. I will put rich garments on you. Put a clean turban on His head. And, and the, the Greek or the Hebrew word for clean turban is a, a turban like He'd go to a party with. Jesus is saying to Joshua who is covered in the sin of Israel. He's saying, look, these angels are going to change your clothes. They're going to put the righteousness on you so you can stand here before God. And then we're going to put a turban on you that says we're going to celebrate what just happened. Because what just happened is Jesus rebuked Satan out of, out of J Joshua's life. And, and now that which was unforgivable has been forgiven. There's a second picture in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, and uh, it's verse 40 to 45. Josh, I gave you the wrong verse there too. I'm sorry. You're going to be mad at me all day now. Josh, it's, it's 40 to 45. Mark 1, verses 40 to 45. It says, Jesus touches the untouchable. This is a story where Jesus is walking through the streets of uh, Jerusalem, and a guy calls out to him. Uh, a leper calls out to him, falls on his knees and begs him and says, if you would... If you are willing, you could make me clean. Now, by the way, lepers weren't allowed to be around or talk to healthy people. So he's already pushing a huge limit by calling out to this crowd that Jesus is walking by with. But he calls out, he begs him, it says he's on his knees begging. If you are willing, you could make me clean. Now the next verse says this, verse 41. Mark 1:41. Filled with compassion... That's got a ton of agape in it. Jesus reaches out His hand and touches the leper. And he says, I am willing. Jesus doesn't mind dealing with untouchable people. See, we have a lot of people in our world that we don't know how to help because they're caught up in all kinds of messes and drugs and, and depression and all kinds of stuff cycling around their life and their lives are just these huge messes. And we don't know. We just don't know. As Christians, sometimes we don't know whether to charge in and rebuke them for their sin or to show grace and compassion, Jesus knew exactly what to do. And He knew that an untouchable person needed a touch. And so He just reached out and put His hand on this man. By the way, it's probably the first time anybody's ever touched Him in years. If He's got full-blown leprosy, nobody gets near Him for years until He dies. And uh, so here, here's the warm touch of Jesus' hand on Him. He says, I am willing. And He makes Him clean. 
And he sends him to the priest and uh, tells him he can go confess. So that's the kind of love that God shows us. And then my favorite, as you would know, many of you who've been here a long time, is John chapter 8. I did get this one right, by the way. John 8, 1 through 12, where Jesus redeems the unredeemable. And a, a woman caught in the very act of adultery that very morning uh, is drug out of her adulterous bed and thrown at the feet of Jesus in the temple. And at the feet of Jesus... Um, she is accused of her adultery by Pharisees who know the law very well. And they say, in John chapter 8, they say, Moses in the law, that's quoting the Old Testament, says that she, women such as she should be stoned. What do you say? And Jesus has to deal with that. He has a choice. He can agree with the law and say stone her, agree with their interpretation of the law and say stone her. Or he can say... You know, I want to have compassion on her like I did the leper, like I did Joshua in the Old Testament. I want to have compassion on her, so I'm going to set her free. At that point, he would be breaking the Old Testament law, which means the Pharisees could take him outside and stone him too, which is really what they want to do. If you, if you read the story carefully, they're trying very hard to catch him uh, and breaking the law so they can uh, get at him. Jesus is very wise. He's, he's riding in the dirt till it boils the Pharisees' little brains. They're... They're just getting amped up and going, what do you say? Give us an answer. Tell us. And Jesus stands up and he says, it's okay to stone her as long as you haven't committed this sin. In other words, if you don't have lust in your heart, feel free to throw those rocks. And all the Pharisees, beginning with the, it says beginning with the oldest, because the oldest one is the wisest, and he knows he's had lust in his heart, which means he's not allowed to throw a stone at her by Old Testament law. Jesus used the law and his ability to redeem, to set her free. You know what the problem? The Pharisees were trying to stone her to death um, along with Jesus, and they put her at the feet of the Redeemer. They cast this sinful woman right at his feet. And Jesus redeems unredeemable people all day long. I've had people tell me before uh, when I've worked with them and they've gone through just a horrible life and done terrible things, you know, God could never fix all this. God can never heal me. or God, God doesn't want anybody like me. And I just tell them these stories. I say, you know what? That is not the God I know and you know. God literally redeems unredeemable people all the time. The more broken you are, the more He loves you. In, in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman at the well, um, she has five husbands and the one she's living with is not her husband, so she's on her sixth affair. And, and Jesus just continues to say, aren't you thirsty? Don't you want some living water? And literally converts her into an evangelist by the end of the chapter. And she's, a, she's this bigoted, arrogant... You know, we've talked about that passage before. She's this grouchy, bigoted, arrogant, pushy woman that Jesus has to deal with in John chapter 4. And got lots of immorality. And it doesn't bother him because he doesn't mind redeeming unredeemable people. He doesn't mind loving unlovable people. That's the kind of love that God has for us. So then I just want to, to say, how much does God love us? Well, Romans 5 is probably one of the easiest places to see this. Romans 5, 19, and I encourage you to mark this in your Bibles. This is one of the key passages in all of Scriptures, in my opinion. For as through one man's disobedience, that's Adam, many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, Jesus, many will be made righteous. The law came in that transgressions might increase. The Old Testament law... Uh, increases our transgressions where sin, but where sin increases, verse 20, grace abounded all the more. 
that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You've heard me explain this a thousand times, and I'll explain it a thousand more times to you because it's a very important concept that you understand. There's no grace outside the boundaries of God's... or there's no sin, let me say it right. There's no sin outside the boundaries of God's grace. The picture in, in, in the Greek here is of sin increasing like a river floods its banks and washes up into the shoreline and up into the tree line and, and it washes onto people's backyards and maybe up into their back deck. It's a flooding river. Sin increases. But it says where sin increases, grace superabounds. Wherever sin is on an increase, God's grace has increased far more. It actually literally means immeasurable. That's why I had to sing today, the love of God, how rich... Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Um, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. You just couldn't, you couldn't write the love of God across the sky if you were using the ink from the ocean. You couldn't do it. That's how great His love is. And the whole point of Romans 5 is any sin in anybody's life is not beyond the reach of God's grace. If they will confess their sins before they die, God's grace will cover them. There's tons of great stories about that uh, in everyday life. And I told the one Wednesday night of Jeffrey Dahmer, a terrible, terrible sinner, a man who did horrible atrocities um, in his lifetime and was convicted of those and sent to jail and beaten to death in jail. But before he died, um, some, some people got to him and shared the gospel with him. And uh, he accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. So in heaven is this horrible guy, just like the thief on the cross. He's a thief that's di dying next to Jesus. He's done so many crimes against Rome. They've got so mad they're killing him. They're going to execute him for his fate or for his crimes against him. And he shows a just a glimmer of faith. Lord, would you remember me when you enter into your kingdom? And Jesus says, "This day you will be with me in paradise." That's how grace works. It covers all our sins. That, that thief had just a long list of crimes against it, probably everybody. And now he's in heaven because grace covers our sins. That's the beauty of God's grace. It reaches through every sin. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, that's how much He loves us, that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus had to become our sacrifice he gave Jesus as a sacrifice. That's how much He loves us. We've talked about it many times before. How many of you would give up your child, your son, to save anyone, even in this church family? If you needed to give your son up to save somebody else in your church family or your own family, you know, that's just one of those things you never hope, you hope you're never asked to even think about. But in reality, God gave His very son um, to die on the cross to save us from our sins. And uh, that's the beauty of how much He loves us. It's really indescribable. I've thought about this many times, just uh, got numerous sermons on the love of God, and every time you just go, you know, there's no way. There's no way to give you the right words. There's lots of great songs written about it. We sang some today. There's lots of great truth written about it. But at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit has to quicken it in your heart and in your mind and make you understand how much God loves you. I was at summer camp when I was 15 years old. It was the first time I'd ever been away from home, and I was at this church, and we went to Camp Victory uh, down in Sampson, Alabama. 
And uh, the speaker there was talking about God's love. And uh, Dave Brubaker was his name. He was talking about God's love. And I was um, really, he challenged us to ask God to show us his love. And I've, I'll never forget sitting under a tree out by the lake one afternoon uh, during our quiet time, um, just praying to God those exact words, 15 years old, Lord, would you just show me how much you love me? Just need you to, you know, I said to do that. I kind of like how he's teaching. He's a good singer and does a lot of cool things. I'd like to try that. And for the next two days of that little weekend retreat we went on there, I could not stop crying. Every time I went to chapel and we started singing about God and His love, I'd bawl like a baby. I'd sit down and read my Bible by myself, sit down and read my Bible and just start crying. And it was like God opened up my brain and said, All right, I'm going to pour my love in, but man, you're going to really struggle with this because it's more love than you can get your head around. And so as he was just pouring into my brain, it was one of those things that my I could not contain my emotions at how much I was being loved on by God at that time in my life. It was overwhelming me. And I mean, it was it was a life-changing event for me when I just said, God, how much do you really love me? And he showed me. So I'm going to encourage you to make that a, a part of your spiritual journey. If you've never just said, God, would you make it so clear it'll never change, it'll never go away? Because I've never lost um, that weekend experience and how strong God loves me. And, you know, I try to live to that as often as I can. Then I want to close with this. Just how long will God love me? Man, there's some great... Great Bible verses that will help you with this. I'd love for you to uh, memorize at least a couple of them. Jeremiah 31, verse 3, um, says it this way. Long ago, the Lord said to Israel, I have loved you, my people, with an everlasting love. With unfailing love, I have drawn you to myself. Unfailing, everlasting lasting love. Nobody here can love you like that. Now I want to tell you, my mom was a serious good mom and her love was never doubted in my life, but it's not this strong. God has an everlasting love because He's an eternal being. He's immortal. He doesn't die, so He can say, it actually says in the Bible, He's loved us from the beginning, from before time was till long after time will be no more. He's loved us through all of that, eternity past to eternity future. God's love is, is a permanent, consistent love for us. I have loved you with an everlasting love and an unfailing love. Deuteronomy 7 is a great verse to memorize. I'm going to read uh, starting at verse 7 with you. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set His heart on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other nations, talking to Israel. For you were the smallest of all nations. Rather, it was simply that the Lord loves you. Do you know why He chose you? When you got saved, do you know why God loves you? Why God chose you? Just because He loves you. It's not because you were the brightest or the smartest or you were going to be some great person. Just because He loves you. And He was keeping the oath He had sworn to your ancestors. That's why the Lord rescued with such a strong hand from slavery out of the oppression in the hand of Pharaoh and king of Egypt. Understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. Listen to this. He is the faithful God who keeps His covenant for a thousand generations and lavishes His unfailing love on those who love Him and obey His commandments. He keeps His covenant promises for a thousand generations. That's a very long time. 
The faithfulness of God, by the way, never stops. Even when we struggle to be un- with our faithfulness, 2 Timothy 2, the Apostle Paul says, if we are unfaithful, He remains faithful. Because the character of God is to love. 1 John 4, verse 8 says, uh, says God is love. It's His very nature and character. So when, I, when I, my world shifts around and I go, you know, God, I just, I just can't, can't be obedient today. I'm unfaithful to you. God says, well, it doesn't change my faithfulness to you at all. People ask me sometimes why I have such a strong view about divorce and why I'm so passionate about the fact that, that divorce is really not a Christian concept. It's a, it's a man concept that, that uses a gap in, in the Philadelphia love theory that says, well, I don't have to love you fully. But God calls me to love my wife with an unconditional love as Christ would love the church, which means I have, it doesn't matter what she does. People, people are getting divorced all the time and go, well, the reason I'm getting divorced is because she did this or he did this. And there's this excuse. The Bible doesn't give excuse. If we love like Christ loves, even when someone's unfaithful, you still should show enormous amount of agape love to them. That's the whole picture of God's love is that we should love one another fully and I'm telling you, when you find couples that have gone through lots of trials and, and lots of, I don't like how you are, but I'm going to keep on loving and keep on loving and keep on loving. When you find couples that are doing that, um, you will see the glory of God just burst out of them eventually. And their, their life story will be a huge testimony. Psalm 100 says these words. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. It's only five verses long. Shout with joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with singing and with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. Go into His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and praise His name. For the Lord is good. Listen to this. His unfailing love continues forever. And His faithfulness continues to every generation. Boy, if you need a verse to memorize, Psalm 100, verse 5, The Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever. And His faithfulness continues to each generation. Um, you could say that to somebody at your office when they start saying cuss words. You know, when they take God's name in vain, go, hey, just so you know, <laughs> the Lord is good. And His unfailing love continues to all generations. Just so you know, when you're cursing, that's, that's who, this is what I know about him, you know. No need to use him as a cuss word. Um, now I want to close with uh, just one more verse. It's not going to be in your notes. But it just continues to overwhelm me as I uh, read through my stuff this week and, and I've been reading through some Jeremiah. Um, God's love is absolutely beautiful, beyond compare. There's a verse in Jeremiah that says, God's love is permanently committed to your good. God's love, that's how much He loves you, and that's the kind of love summed up in just one verse. Uh, Jeremiah 32, verse 40, He says, and you should add this to the bottom of your notes, I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good to them, and I will inspire them to fear me. I will rejoice in doing them good and will assuredly plant them in the land with all my heart and with all my soul. God's commitment from the beginning of time has been to do good for us. His work toward us has always been for our good. He desires to have a permanent relationship 
uh, with us where He can show us the good He's doing for us. God is committed to doing good for us. John Piper says, because God exalts Himself through His love, by the way, that's how He exalts Himself. Uh, God is to be exalted because of His love. And we're supposed to exalt Him because of His love. He exalts Himself through His love. So John Piper says, He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. Now think about that. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And so His commitment is to do good to us because He wants us to be satisfied in Him. His commitment is to do good to us because He wants to be satisfied. John Piper says, Because God exalts Himself through His love, He is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And His commitment to do us good is as strong as His commitment to be God. He's never not going to be God. Which means He's always going to be doing good for you. God always wants to do good for you. Now I want to ask you as we close to reevaluate. I don't think anything I've said, other than maybe some verses you haven't heard in a long time, maybe tying some things together you haven't heard, but I don't think anything here today told anybody something brand spanking new. I think you know God loves you. And this season is all about how much He loves you, that He would send His Son to earth to be born of a virgin, to die on the cross to save us from our sins. Um, I think you know that. Um, but I really do think Every so often in a Christian's life, you need to just evaluate how much does God really love me and have I embraced that love? Have I looked back to say to God, wow, this is amazing love that you have for me. Your, your love is amazing. We sang this song, I was lost, I was in chains, the world has a hold on me. My heart was a stone, I was covered in shame when he came for me. Then it says this, I couldn't run, I couldn't hide from your presence. Um, I couldn't run from his arms. He loves me, he loves me. How can it be he loves me? How can it be that the king of kings, the king of all kings, um, the king of all universes, how can it be that he would love you personally with all the sins you've committed against him? Because He loves you with an agape love, something that's almost foreign to us. But He was willing to make it real to you. At some point in your life, God made that love real to you, and it, it settled your, into your life, and you chose to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I was a little boy when it happened. A um, little boy at Greystone Christian School in second grade, and I got saved at that age. And I've, I've never regretted it for a minute, giving my whole life to Jesus. If you've never trusted Christ, your Lord and Savior, today's the day to do that. So let me bow in prayer. Let me ask you all to bow with me.